Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II podcast. For those serial listeners, you may notice that today's Saturday when we publish this and it's not going out on a Sunday and there's a very good reason for that, but we will get to that shortly. And joining us today is a very special guest and uh, he's the reason why we are hosting this episode on a Saturday, Chris Camarado. Chris, how are you doing today? Okay, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Um... Before we get to the reason why you're here and the anniversary of the event in which you want to talk about, let's get a little bit of background on you. Um, I understand you enlisted into the Navy at an early age. Uh, let's start there. Uh, I went at 17 in, uh, in 1978. Uh, I remember joining and I had to have uh, both parents sign for me. My father signed for me with one hand and then he signed my mother's name with the other hand because she was crying. <laughs> And uh, it's a long time ago, but I joined in uh, on September 1978. The year I was born. So I was 17 years old and uh, went right to boot camp. Uh, uh, Great Mistakes or Great Lakes, Illinois. Which, uh, that's where, you know, it was freezing out there. But by the time the coldest winter I ever spent was in Great Lakes, Illinois. Now, to be quite honest with you, I am a little ignorant on the boot camp process for the Navy. Uh, most of my research, obviously, is for World War II, but is also with Army and the Marine Corps, which, yes, the Marine Corps is a uh, division of the Navy. But um, go through the enlistment process as far as the boot camp and then the training and then the assignment of the Navy, if you would. Uh, well, uh, they, back then, I think there was three boot camps, uh, San Diego, uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, and Orlando. And I was in New York, and uh, I think the women was in Orlando, and then all the West Coast went out to, uh, you know, in San Diego, and I ended up in, in uh, Chicago, Great Lakes, Illinois. And uh, it was, th- I, th- I think it was three months. The whole thing was three months long. And uh, again, it was, it, was, it, was all, it was all guys, and now it's co-ed. And I remember uh, going to boot camp with Saudi Arabians. They had a company of Saudi Arabians back then. They were Navy fighters, but first they wanted them to go to boot camp. And I was in Company 259. Uh, I was all kinds of guys from all over the all over the country, and uh, I, I I had no issues with it. You know, the the chow was uh, it took you about seven days before uh, you know anything kicked in. They made you eat fruit, so you would go to the bathroom. <laughs> now, obviously, one of the key differences between, a, let's say, an army boot camp and the navy boot camp is obviously if you're going to be in the navy, you're going to be on the ship and waterbound. And I'm assuming they they put a little more emphasis on waterborne training and things like that and getting used to being in confined spaces or am I just making that up? No, no, there's swimming. They threw you off the, uh, the the 20-foot thing into the pool and I could swim. A lot of guys couldn't, but uh, they faked it. And it was a lot of firefighter training. It was th- That was the deal there. They, they put you in the building. They put an OBA on, which is an oxygen breathing apparatus. They put an OBA on you. They sit you in the building and then uh, so you breathe for a while and then the guy would come in and he would yank it off your face and you would feel for 30 seconds you would feel how it is to be inside a burning building when and you choke and you go out and you throw up and, uh, and that's that's how you learned <laughs> so you completed your boot camp you completed your training and then you got your assignment where did you get assigned to i uh they, they posted it up everybody got all over the place all over the world and uh, uh i looked at my name and it was uh, the uss nimitz and I had no idea what a Nimitz was. I, I think I remember this hearing about the Nimitz. He was a he was a big time admiral in World War II. That's correct. And I had no idea that I was going to uh, the, the the nuclear f- uh, flagship of the Seventh Fleet. And once this realization came to you that you were going to be on the largest vessel as far as um, aircraft carriers go, 
was it shock? Was it excitement? Was it okay? Well, it is what it is. Let's roll with it. I mean, how did you feel when you finally realized uh, where you're going? Uh, well, as far as the other guys, they got, a lot of them got the tin cans and destroyers, and you know they went to uh, training or, or schooling. I went right to the fleet, and I just like I had absolutely no idea what what this was going to be. I had none, none at all. I, so it was a total surprise to me when we got there. Now, just to back up a little bit, because once again, as I said, I was um, I'm a little naive on the Navy boot camp. When it comes to those who served on submarines, is that voluntary or is that something they choose you for based on skills that they notice during boot camp? I think it's the ASVA. Everything's your test. What you get is score. The higher you get a, the test, you know, score that you when you take the initial test to get into the Navy, pretty much you're eligible for these five things. If you do this, if you get a score like this, you're eligible for ten things and, and, and so on and so forth. But the submarine, you had to be for claustrophobic and stuff. Mm-hmm. There was special training. Absolutely, there was special training for that. Could you foresee yourself ever serving on a sub? My father was in World War II. He was uh, he was at Normandy, and I, I figured if it was good enough for Pops to serve for his country, it was good enough for me. So I just wanted to do my time. And um, obviously, guys of that generation, World War II, they don't talk a whole lot about it, at least back then they didn't. Um, as they've gotten older and they realize the importance of getting their history on record, they're starting to get a little more open about it. But obviously your father spoke very little about it but what you do know was he was a pathfinder for the 101st airborne right that's that's correct he jumped on on june the 6th and uh he uh he was uh, uh saint mary glace is where he jumped mm-hmm. that's that's right away that's right in the heart of it though and he started from there and he worked his way from there through france and uh into belgium and i uh i don't think he was he wasn't in the battle of the bulge but he was just fighting in france and in belgium and you also mentioned he um, spent a few uh, campaigns as a glider writer as well, correct? Uh, for, yeah, he, he mentioned a couple of times he was, uh, for, for, for ballast, they needed to test them. How many guys could, so they asked for volunteers, and he said he got them out of duty for a while, so that's why he volunteered for it. Nice. Um, so as you, those of you listening who are World War II fans, obviously you noticed uh, when Chris was talking about his boot camp, you kind of noticed that we are out of the realm of the 1940s, and there's a very important reason for that. And that is because today, this Saturday, is an anniversary of an event that Chris wants to help shine a light on. Because one, it's an important event, and this show is about history and military history. But second of all, Chris was there. And as you stated earlier, um, once you got your assignment, you were assigned to the Nimitz. Now, before we got to the event that we want to um, commemorate, if you will, let's go through a little bit of your history of your activities on this ship and the things that you were involved with. Okay, so uh, you got to remember, out of the forty-eight month enlistment, I was forty-five months on the Nimitz. That means I was ship's company. So there, were, there was a lot of squadrons on board that they'd come and they go, they'd come and they go, they stay for the Nimitz for four or five months, then they leave, and then they come back. I was ship's company, so I was on there. And it seems like all this stuff that that happened just happened in this forty-five month period. Uh, at first, when I got there, I got there. It was uh, Super Bowl Sunday, in January nineteen seventy-nine. Uh, the first Liberty Port was Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which was an absolute fantastic. Just picture yourself 18 years old in a sailor suit in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. At the time, it was all the Cuban refugees, you know, from Cuba. Mm-hmm. And the place was packed with young kids and girls and stuff. It just, uh, I had a blast. Now, was that your first experience in Florida, or had you come down here no, on that was vacation? Just, no, that was my first experience in Fort Lauderdale. And on, on a Liberty, it was, you know, fantastic. It was, it was a blast. I can imagine. And so after your short liberty in Fort Lauderdale, where'd you go? Uh, we'd, we'd go out for two, uh, two weeks, three weeks. And I, I think right after that, like, like February, the next month, uh, they, uh, they started filming a, 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 
uh, a movie on the shift called The Final Countdown. Mm -hmm. Now, The Final Countdown, it was with Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, Charles Doring, Catherine Ross, James Farentino. I mean, a big, big movie production. And it's about uh, the Nimitz is out uh, doing its thing, and uh, and and it, it turns up, it goes through some electrical storm, and it pops up on December 6th, 1941, after it goes through this electrical storm. So, so that's kind of, kind of a time travel Oh, sci-fi. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And for, 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 uh, for first, it was filmed in Norfolk. It had nothing to do with Hawaii, because mm -hmm. trust me, I was there. And uh, so that's the whole premise of the movie. What, what, what do they do? Do we change history or do we let everything go on? Because one carrier, one Nimitz-class carrier could have won World War II by itself. Yes, and thus the butter butterfly effect and change in history and the way everything goes. And a big moral um, question comes in at that point. Now, obviously with Hollywood, they do a lot of their filming on the sets. How much time did they actually spend shooting on site on the Nimitz for that for that feature, I, I, probably three weeks, three, three four weeks. weeks. The, they were the, the big cheeses were on there. You know, the the store. I got an autograph by Kirk Douglas, and every time they had general quarters, they filmed everybody going crazy. I'm in a I'm in a little spot for that. I'm in a little spot in the library, and at the end of the, uh, the movie, there's this thing for side boys. Side boys is when you walk on and off the ship. You're supposed to have uh, salute all the officers. Again, I was 18 years old. I remember uh, we got uh, we got 500 bucks. Okay. Nice. You got scale. We got five hundred dollars. Okay. They gave the the dispersing guy was there. He gave us a check for five hundred dollars. The guy next to him was the Navy Relief Fund, mm -hmm. and the guy next to him was Liberty Passes. So <laughs> the check went from my hand to the Navy Relief Fund, and I got my Liberty Pass. <laughs> nice. So the money earned went right to the Liberty. Not fund. a nickel. Now let me ask you this: since it was a semi time, well, not semi, it was a time traveling movie. Um, once the Nimitz was back in quote unquote 1940, was there a wardrobe change, or were you guys still wearing your modern day Navy uniforms? Or in the movie, did they kind of bring back the throwbacks? How did that work? I know there was only a, there was only a couple like the Japanese zeros. Yeah, they were. The, 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 I remember the uh, the Japanese pilots. They were in old garb, and so was uh, Charles Doring and Catherine Ross. I think they were the only character. The rest of us were in up to you know 1979 outfits. I'll have to check that movie out. To be honest with you, I haven't heard of it until today, but it's. Uh be an interesting sci-fi movie to uh to check out especially s considering you're in it so after your big hollywood debut and your check that you got for uh from the screen actors guild for scale which mm -hmm. was promptly uh let's say liberated from you right where did you go to next uh, it was just sequels everything was uh, you'd go out touch and go so you'd go out and how many uh it was uh, how many uh airplanes or the f uh, tomcats could touch they just touch and then they go. They'd land. They'd shoot off. They'd land. They'd shoot. This was constantly going on in uh, 1979, and uh, it, it, we did a lot of it. it, it A7s. I'm thinking A6s. Uh, A, there's two kinds of A6. Back the one is called the queer. That's because it's a four seater, mm -hmm. and the other one is a two seater. The queer was the the, the one that fueled the planes. Okay. Okay. I mean, back then we called it a queer. There was no pun intended at sure. all. So the, the queer, you fuel it. And uh, we were working on the flight deck, which is uh, about four and a half football fields long. That's how, that's how big the flight deck is. And uh, if the plane turned on you at the wrong time, if you were walking, say, 50, 60 yards behind the plane and you shouldn't have been there, that you would just roll on the deck. And you'd just keep rolling. From the blast. From, from the, the blast. Sure. And uh, they had a, like a 10-foot screen around the, mm -hmm. 
the, the top of the the top of the deck and if you landed in the screen you did okay if you didn't land it was 90 feet down to the water 90 feet down into the water right from a vessel traveling at how many knots on the, well that was the Nimitz could go probably about I'd say about 40 miles an hour needless street. to say that would be the equivalent of landing on a street worst case scenario I mean um, to, to fall at that height at that speed and to hope that you have enough um, wits about you to be able to swim because obviously you know you may have a life preserver on but worst case scenario you wouldn't in your time on that vessel did you ever see anybody make that plunge or? all the time really and i mean there was there's so many accidents that you never hear about and when you said uh, your life vest so you wore the flight deck you had headgear you had ear gear the, the goggles you wore a, a thing that you just push you and it, mm-hmm. and it blew up you wore shock repellent was on it you had a grounding wire on it, a flashlight on it that was, if you did fall in. But if you did fall in, the, the, the screws would get, the props would get you. Yeah. You know, because there's four props on that, that, on the ship, and you could see it from the space shuttle, the wake. Sure. That, that, that the Nimitz, it's like you could see the Great Wall of China, you could see the wake with, with the Nimitz, any of those carriers. Well, go. I mean, you basically have a three-city block <laughs> vessel yeah. Yeah. pushing through, you know, creating a huge wake. But the accidents happened. Guys fell overboard all the time. Uh, the uh, the arresting wire would break. Okay, when that broke, that just cut you in half. Yeah. I mean, some guys would have their head up their butt and walk into an engine. You know, they trip over a, a grounding wire or a, tr- a chalk and chain. Now the grounding wire is that the wire that the planes snag the hook on when they're landing? No, that's the arresting wire. That's the arresting wire. The, What's the grounding the wire? Ground, I was fueled, so that's we fueled the planes. Okay. That's what we did. We fueled the planes, and every plane had to be grounded. Okay, for static electricity. For static electricity. So and, grounding wire wasn't an acronym; it was actually a grounding wire. And you used that's, you used JP five because in 1967 with John McCain when he was on the Forrestal, uh, mm-hmm. they, they 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 changed it from JP four, which was very flammable. Is that the uh, the jet fuel? The jet fuel. Okay. And uh, JP five, you could throw a match in a bucket of JP, and it won't go off. Sure. Um, now a lot of people are familiar with John McCain, obviously as a politician. A lot of people know about him and the um, his his prisoner of war state, but he was involved in an on deck um, accident. Oh, absolutely! It was it all started with his plane. You want to explain to our listening audience what happened with John and his his uh, it's a, it, it's a it's a film that they make you watch in boot camp. Okay, it's it's mandatory. The Nimitz now is mandatory to watch in boot camp also. Uh, but McCain's plane it was uh, it was getting a, a hot pump. You know they got those things that's the tractors that stick up to it mm-hmm. and they get the, the the jet engines going. It was malfunctioned. It went on fire, and there's a picture of a of a chief a CPO running up with a fire extinguisher put it out and within three seconds the, the bomb blew off on, you know, on McCain's plane. I think it was next it was either McCain or the one next to him. I'm not sure but uh, that started a chain reaction and it ended up with 127 dead in 1967 on the Forrestal. Now was this before or after? I'm assuming this happened before he got captured correct? Three months before he got captured. Okay. I'm talking about a bad run of luck. Okay. So and, a, and a strong well some may say good about luck, the fact that he survived two, one, you know, accident, one horrible, you know, treatment at at the uh, prison camp. I mean, they did horrible things to him. And, and to have the strength and the um, mental fortitude to Endurance. carry on after, after that, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people walking away from that plane accident 
that damn near killed you, that would have been enough to shake a lot of people straight out of service, or at least into you know some sort of psychiatric evaluation for a period of time. Yeah, I, I respect him for his service. I I, I mean I don't, I don't agree with him in his political stuff, but sure. I definitely respect him. And he was on CV fifty nine, and the Nimitz was uh, CV uh, CVN nuclear sixty eight. So that's how many carriers they had between. 67 and 79 what they have not many of them around but the Nimitz is still around it's I think it's going until 2025 and so after after the filming you uh, you hit open sea and at a certain point you finally uh, you crossed the equator and you you moved up in uh, the social rank in the Navy you didn't you know earn an actual physical rank but you did step up in the social rank that goes around in the monks the Navy okay is that correct Yes, that's uh, well. It all started on uh, on November fourth of nineteen seventy nine. Is when the uh, Iranians took over the embassy in, in Tehran. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they took fifty two American hostages. And at the time, Nimitz was in uh, Venice, Italy. Great Liberty Port. I mean, it was fantastic. We were having the times of our life. Boom! Next day, yanked us out on the way. So to, you only got to spend maybe eighteen hours, twenty hours at the uh, most. And in I, Italy? I had a date with some. Oh, some, sure you oh, did. Oh man. It, and it never happened. I, the father was a professor. He was buying his beers. We were in uniform. And that never Beautiful happened. Beautiful Italian women running around. Oh, I met all my cousins in Italy. Uh, that was the, we were on the med cruise, which we got to see all the different countries. But that got cut short because they yanked us and we went right over. We had to go around Africa. And that's where we became a, sha- a shellback when you cross the equator. Now, it's a big, it's a big, big thing uh, in the Navy to, be a, uh, to cross the equator. It's initiation. It's a privilege. They've been doing it since Davy Jones, you know, 200 years of Navy tradition. So when you cross the equator, before you you cross it, you're considered a polywog. Okay. Okay. And then once you do cross it, it's they close down the flight deck. They close down everything for the whole day. And the uniform of the day is your, your, your underwear on backwards. They give you green ham, uh, green eggs, green ham. Uh, you got to go through, walk through a garbage chute where they mm-hmm. put all garbage in this thing, and you got to crawl about 33 through this garbage chute. And uh, they got, they get the fattest guy they possibly can. They stick him on a on a throne with a crown. No, is he in his skivvies too, or is he at least yeah, in the Yeah, uniform? no, I think he was in his skivvies, but he had a robe on. Sure. Okay. And uh, they take cat, catapult grease and they stick it on the stomach, and you got to come up to him on your knees and say, oh, you know, you got to you, you got to beg forgiveness for being a polywog, and now that you're going to be a, sh- <laughs> a shellback. Sure. And then he takes you and you got to kiss his gut with the cat grease on it. So it's, it's bad enough you got to kiss the stomach of a obese sailor, well, as, as obese as a sailor becomes, and but then to compound that with grease, but I'm sure with the excitement. And just the whole pomp and circumstance, it was probably worth it. Yeah. Now he was a he was a shellback. So all these guys yeah, running, sure. they were, they didn't have to go through the because sure. uh, they did it twenty years mm-hmm. before. Okay. So when we went over the Nimitz, there was five thousand five hundred men on the ship. Okay. Maybe five hundred were shellbacks. Maybe ten percent were shell. So the rest of us were all polywogs. So we all had to go through this initiation. That was a long, long procession that day. Yeah, the whole thing. They had to wow. mount. They had a fifty-foot mountain of clothes that they. Well, that, how many times I had to reapply that grease to his stomach after you guys kissed it all <laughs> off? So it, it was happened on the the uh, the ninth of January, nineteen eighty, in the Indian Ocean. That's when it happened. That's fantastic. The movie, the trip to Italy. Your new. Uh, rank and social order was just the beginning 
um, you're about to break another record, or at least a um, something that hadn't happened since 1943, 44, 45. Right. And that was an extremely extended stay at sea. Okay. What was the uh, cause for that? Well, when we went over that, we first when we went over there to uh, to Iran in the Gulf of Homans, which was called Gonzo Station. Uh, we were supposed to. Uh, Washington came up with a, a rescue attempt, okay, and that happened in April. Okay, we were supposed to go in there and, and rescue the uh, the hostages. They sent four helicopters in. They landed in a dust storm. Uh, I mean, it was a failure. It was the people say it was failure from day one. We don't know. We were just there, but eight guys died in the desert. So that brought everything to a halt. The helicopters took off from the Nimitz. And then like a, a week or so after that is when we had our 100th day at sea, which like I said, was the first time since World War II. And they authorized a, a two cans of beer per, per sailor, okay? Now on a normal time or normal day, are um, enlisted sailors authorized to even consume alcohol? Or no. is that something for the NCOs and the brass? They stopped that in 1914. Okay. Okay. They haven't had allowed uh, booze for enlisted men since 1914, which uh, the, the the British Navy, they do it all the time. They have pints and rum and mm-hmm. all. They've been doing that forever. So it was a big thing. Two cans of beer down the hatch, and we had a steel beach uh, picnic. That's what they used to call them because it was on top of the flight deck. And they had, you know, uh, the hamburgers, the hot dogs, and what the football games and whatever we could possibly. Again, not one woman. Yeah. Okay. Just fifty-five hundred guys. So it, it was a whole different ball game back then. But uh, we made the best of it. That was the hundred. So it was a hundred days at sea, and we ended up spending one hundred and forty-four days at sea. Now the day of the two beers and the barbecue is probably some of the best chow you had had on that vessel, and since you stepped on foot on it, is it? Well, is that the a beer assumption? was, but I, I I can't agree with you on the chow. The chow was always it was never. I don't know what they do now, but man, the chow was never good on the on, on the. No. The steaks were like, you know, six years in the freezer, okay? Horse meat? <laughs> so. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is uh, kids complaining about their school lunches, they have nothing to complain about compared to the chow you had on the Nimitz. No, I actually lost 10 pounds when I went into the Navy. I came out at 10, 10 pounds a lot. I think I went into 165. I came out at 155. Wow. So it was never, the only time it was good is when you first went out. You had fresh eggs, fresh milk. Okay, for a week or two. I mean, mm-hmm. you're feeding 5,500 guys three times a day. Sure. I mean, the food is just a... Yeah, and it's not like you're stopping in port every two days to re-up on the grocery list. I mean, you're you're surviving off of what you guys had loaded up before you left port, and you have to make it last. And uh, being on being on the Nimitz, uh, another another uh, uh, goal or whatever was to, the, the steam catapults came first, okay, for showers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you had a three-minute shower. Now, they had a petty officer in charge sitting there watching you take a shower with a clock. Now, are these saltwater showers or freshwater? Uh, it's uh, desalinated water. Okay. Okay. Three minutes. Soap up, shut it off. Lather up for a minute, put it, put the water on. So it was three minutes. You were in and out in three minutes. So you were never truly clean, especially I, if, you know, if you're somebody who actually works in the mechanic side where you're all greased up all day. I mean... Three minutes, you can only get so so much scrubbing done. Again, you weren't. There wasn't too many people to impress. Sure. Okay. So you you did the three minutes there on, on the show. That that came first. Uh, always the catapults came first, and the the Nimitz because it was nuclear, it had plenty of room for aviation gas. Okay. So it didn't need gas to run the ship. Mm-hmm. A tank of gas for the Nimitz lasts about thirteen years. Wow. Okay. So 
or had uh, had enough fuel on that ship to, to if we had we were at war, that ship could run 21 hours, 21 days continuously bombing the crap out of everybody mm-hmm. for 21 days without having to refuel for the planes. So even if the if the world ended, the Nimitz would still fight on for 21 days. Where you know, so that's that's a definitely a huge achievement. Now I don't want to digress from something very important you said. We kind of I backtracked a little bit. What was the total amount of days you guys spent consecutively at sea? One hundred forty-four. Now, at what point do you start to get a little, little crazy, being confined to a uh, floating city for one hundred forty-four days? Well, I, I probably after. Uh, I, I mean, you just did, and you worked. You worked from, I mean, three o'clock in the morning until ten o'clock at night. And you, it was just, you just worked. You were so fatigued, you really didn't have time to think about it. I slept in the rack for 12 hours, and then somebody else... That's what I was going to ask, okay. if you rotate racks. Some guys did. We were lucky. There was only about 150 people in, in, in our little compartment, which is about the size of an average house okay. in Cape Coral. A 1,500 square foot house. We had about, it was, the racks were three high. Okay, and it was just that everybody worked. You were never there. You were only there to sleep. Mm-hmm. And at night, it, the guy was there to watch it take a shower. <laughs> now, during these 144 days, I'm assuming you guys were doing a little bit more than work detail, correct? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Well, I mean the, the vessel itself. The, you guys were cl- clearly out on the uh, open seas for 144 days because you guys were performing, I'm guessing, some sort of um, viable uh, activity for servicing the Air Force, the Navy, the Army. I mean... Otherwise, otherwise, what would be the purpose of being out there for so long? Well, just uh, well, that's because they're hostages. Okay. We were out there strictly for the hostages. We had to make a presence, and this we were the flagship of the Seventh Fleet. So, so it's you, essentially, a show of force at that. Oh, moment. absolutely. There was three carriers out there. It was the Kitty Hawk, the Nimitz, and the Midway. Okay. And the Midway is like you know wooden decks. I mean, that's, yeah. I think it's a training thing. We were relieved by the Eisenhower, which was. Uh, six, uh, was uh, 69 CV 69 was the uh, CV it was uh, the Eisenhower, but uh, we did we did our time 144 days and uh, and when we came back into port in uh, Virginia, uh, Carter was there. He met us. He came on board. President Carter. So I mean, I'm, I happened to be on duty that day, so I fueled this helicopter. I That's close you got to him. Yeah, I fueled this helicopter. Well, I really didn't want to shake the guy's hand. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> Can't blame you there. I'm not a car. I was never a Carter fan. When the Reagan came a few months later, but I, what I remember about that uh, that 148 days out, it was unrep. All the ships would pull up to us mm-hmm. and give us, you know, stores and stuff like that. Okay, you know, we take on fuel all the time, uh, you know, for the planes. We take on food, all kinds, of, and uh, they'd shoot a shot line over. Right, you grab the shot line and then you start. And I remember, I mean, there couldn't have been maybe 40, 50 yards between us. And you're basically transferring everything via cable and pulley right. systems. Right, and and if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I would have never. So we're doing it one day, and right in the middle of the two of them, a submarine pops up. Okay, if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I would have never believed it. But submarine popped up, you know, and the guys came out and waved. and Showing off a bit, huh? Because there's absolutely no reason for them to pop up in between <laughs> two large vessels, especially during an offload. And, and I'm trying to, every, every time we were out on the Nimitz, there was always a Russian troll. Okay. Uh, okay, around, okay. And they had this little helicopter on board, and they'd come and circle the Nimitz and take pictures. And every time we were up there, we we, we, always, we never ate good. We always got a box lunch. 
which was a, just a sandwich and an apple mm -hmm. or an orange or something. And we'd throw the oranges at the, at the <laughs> helicopter because that, that's how close they were. Yeah. Sometimes we'd hit it. Nice. So, yeah, that was, that's One enough. for the good guys. <laughs> now, a submarine, was that, that was an American sub, right? Oh, it's a nuclear. A nu uh, Nimitz, you have a nuclear task force. Okay. You have the, I think the California with us, was, okay. with, and was it the Brisbane? You have it if you have a nuclear aircraft carrier, you need a nuclear destroyer and a nuclear submarine. That was the task force, so they could all be out there at the same time. Yeah, because obviously you don't want one that can uh, be out there for a long time and not have anyone to provide the same length of time of protection. Protection, that's all it is. Because any time in the military, you're always whether you're a foot slogger on the front lines, you're in the sky or you're on the sea, you're always going to have. A battle buddy if you will whether it's a huge vessel or a submarine but there's always going to be someone there to help showing the, get the job done that's what they always show the flag fly the flag so today being saturday is a very important day and uh let's get down to the crux of this conversation on uh this date back 1981 37 years you had just what five days prior or 10 days prior? 11 days uh, 11 days prior on may 15th they called me up uh, we were pulling out okay we were pulling out of norfolk we're going out for sea calls this is 1981 this is a year after the after the uh, iranian stuff mm -hmm. so they called me up and they said uh, chris you, you've been doing good you know you've been uh, hustling busting your butt we're gonna promote you to flight deck and staying out of the brig uh yeah well I, I never made the brig which was a good thing so uh they uh they said we're gonna put you in flight deck control which was like the cake job that was 12 on 12 off that's you worked 12 and you worked in on the in the flight deck control in the superstructure okay which is the that thing on top of the on the flight deck when okay. you see, then everything's flat except that thing the first floor is flight deck control that's where the air boss wings and they have it they have a glass table and you push the planes around mm -hmm. and the, the, the air boss would come and say i need a hose on 101 and I learned how to write backwards because he would be over there and I'd be writing backwards for each plane. Sure. We had 100 planes on the Nimitz. So and you'd have to tell which one is available, how much gas is in it. and what Because is... the majority of stuff was still analog back in. Oh, yeah. You know, you with a grease pencil and a glass wall writing backwards. No uh, no fancy computer displays. And the sound-powered phones. And they'd say, fuels, I need a hose on 101. So I'd call up, I'd get the, the crew. To... Now, just before this, I was on the crew. I was a crew leader. I had three guys. We were in Station 6. And they, uh, they switched. The guy inside, his name was uh, Dennis Driscoll. He's a good friend of mine from New Jersey. Same age, 21. Well, I remember about Dennis. He had a humongous nose and an even bigger laugh. That's what I remember <laughs> about Dennis. The guy was a great guy. We, we spent time together off the ship on Liberty. And he, was, uh, he wanted to be a fireman. He wanted to get out of the uh, V4 division. That's what I was in, V4. as a grape. He wanted to get out, so they, they he was, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to. So they switched this. They said, well, they took him out of control, and they put him back on the deck. They said, all right, you go drag hose. Mm -hmm. Like, they were pissed with him. Yeah. Okay, so come So they didn't give him what they wanted. He got the transfer, but not to where he wanted no. to go. he changed rank. He went from an airman to a fireman. He was an FN, not an okay. AN. I was an AN. So that happened on the 15th. I got qualified in flight deck control. We go out to do the sea calls. And then 11 days later is when the accident happens on the Nimitz, right off the coast of Florida. And for those who are listening who are not familiar with the accident, could you give some details on what happened that day? Uh, well, it was just, uh, we were just doing sequels, touch and go, touch and go. And it happened, uh, it happened at night. And uh, there was an F, uh, there was an A, uh, I think it was an A6 that came in. 
it, it came in instead of uh, landing, and it, it landed off to the to the left, and it, it it plowed into four Tomcats, and each Tomcat had a hose on it, a fueling hose, mm-hmm. and each Tomcat was loaded with missiles and 50 caliber machine guns, and and it started a chain reaction, and Dennis was on six, and that's exactly where it hit. He didn't even know what hit him. Well, okay, I mean, if he was alive for three seconds, that would have been a lot. He got hit with this. He's 21 years old. He was the first to go, and then uh, it ended up with 14 dead. Most, a lot of them died from the uh, the 50 caliber machine gun shooting off, okay? Because the fuel, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it warped the deck. And, you know, by the next morning when we seen all the, it's 14 dead, 49 injured, okay? And I was in flight deck control, and I'm watching this on the TV with the air boss. And you're trained to, you know, you have to call up to the, down to the pump room and say, shut the fuel off. You gonna, I got to tell you what valve to shut this is where you got to go this two tack three tack lima you know all this navy talk to go there to shut the valves off to shut the fuel off because you're pumping fuel up and, you, and these guys are burning up there i mean it's absolute chaos on top of the flight deck for for this you know for this 15 20 minute period it was chaos and uh by the next day they came we had to push the boat the, the planes off the off the top of the deck how long did it take to um contain the situation that night I guess it's it, it, over an hour because clearly or maybe not clearly I don't know I wasn't there and I'm not familiar with Navy procedure but I'm assuming to a certain extent you kind of had to wait for the ammunition to stop actively going, going off before you can get out there and actively fight the fire otherwise you guys would just be running into open, open well, uh, line of fire uh, crash and smash they were the guys with the the suits on, and okay. they, they, they were in charge. They had the big crane and everything, crash and smash. They did that. Uh, we, we participated in uh, uh, rigged barricade drills when every time the plane came in and the tail hook was off, it had to come in and go into the net. Mm-hmm. I've seen that happen with a Hawkeye. Uh, so, yeah, but that was, that was you, know, you, know, you know, we went into port, and it was a big thing. You know, my uh, parents found out about it. You know, they didn't know. They, you know my uh, mother told me it was the first time she ever seen my father cry. When they didn't know what was happened to me, I was sure. I was uh, twenty. I was yeah, tw- I was twenty, going to be twenty-one years old. So you know, it's it's just a, a wild thing. I can I, I no, I couldn't imagine. I mean, the the sound, the chaos. I mean, everything. I just I couldn't even begin to imagine. And and what happened was that we pulled into port and to show the world that this we could blow this off. Mm-hmm. We were out back at sea in four days. Which days. really doesn't give you much time to process. No, as we we had we we can't we have we just back out to sea. Boom, we got it. Now, as far as the uh, the burial procedures, did you guys do the standard burial at sea, or did they take the bodies back to the the families? How did that whole? I was supposed to be the uh, the, uh, the navy uh, the guy to go up with with the body for Dennis in New Jersey, but I went home. I went home for three days, and I was UA for three days. So I got when I come back, I got captain's mast, and I think they, I think uh, Hillebrand, Fred Hillebrand, he went up for 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 Dennis, Dennis Driscoll in New Jersey, and he was the Navy's, uh, you know, the guy to show up for the funeral procession. Me, I was, a bunch of us went home, and we all got captain's mast. I got 45 days restriction, 45 days extra duty. So you're absent without leave for three days. Yeah, I went home to see my family. Process. I tried to, you know, and in the meantime, the Navy was trying to push this off as, uh, 
you know, it was the it was the crewman's fault or something. They were all on dope. Yeah, when I was research, I didn't want to bring that up because you know, obviously, we were the whole concept of doing this podcast today, and the whole reason that we stepped out of the World War II bounds was to focus the remembrance on on what happened and those who lost their lives. Mm-hmm. But I, when I was researching that, I did come across a few yeah. um, stories of saying, I guess. How many died overall? 14 dead, 49 injured. And they're saying, I guess, like four of them had traces of marijuana in their in their systems and, and, and stuff like it that. It was pilot error. Yeah. The pilots were fatigued. That's what it came down to. I mean, if somebody was there, and, you know, I don't know about reports or, would, you know, conspiracy theories, the pilots were spent. Sure. Just like the rest of us were. When you work 14, 15, 16 hours a day doing this, doing constantly touch and go, touch and go, touch and go. When it happened, it, it was at nighttime. Do you remember vaguely around what time? I think it was like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And how many hours consecutively have you guys been running this drill? Were you guys going all day? Did you just get started? And you said they're burnt out. You go from from uh, 3 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. You, know, you get four or five hours in the rack, and if you get lucky to get a shower. Sure. Okay, but they only, and you know, again, if you get the shower, you know the guy watching you. So, uh, uh, I mean, it's it's a long time ago, and it, you know, and I want to focus on these these poor guys who never became especially dent dentistry. Got at twenty one years old. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy had his whole life ahead of him. But that's what you do when you sign your paper, when you raise your hand, and I swear to protect the Constitution in the United States, the foreign and domestic, whether it's an accident, whether you served with George Washington, or whether you served with uh, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and everything in between. You you take that chance, and that's just. Most people know that. Yep. I mean, that's that's all I could say. Well, I appreciate you coming out today and helping us honor the memory of those who uh, passed in the uh, accident. Um, clearly, policy changes have been put forth because, as you stated previously, when we were talking about John McCain, you're saying now that when you're going through the Navy, you um, they basically work this accident into the training and how to prevent it. I've been on the Nimitz once. I think we went in 1998. It seemed 20 years ago, and they it was a whole different ball game. They had it was co-ed. They had like email. You know, there was like a Starbucks on it. You know, and the food was great. You know, and I've been we've been to everywhere from Israel to Egypt to to Italy to Germany to England to uh, Spain. I, to probably I, I forgot a couple. Uh, Tunisia. Okay, when we were in uh, in. Uh, uh, England, we went to the. I told you we went into the Arctic Circle. That's mm-hmm. when I became a blue nose. That's another thing. If you, if you sail inside the Arctic Circle, you get a certificate that says you're a blue nose, which was, you know, the waves. Or you, we tilted. I think if you went 21 degrees, the dimmits would tilt over. We were 14 degrees, so we were almost there. Just, just, just to see how much that you could take, you know. And this was all during the Cold War. So were you out on were you out on the flight deck? Oh yes, yeah. oh yeah. So there was a little bit of cir- uh, pomp and circumstance and uh, no, 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 for that? not on that. No, no. no you just you're, just, you're just out there working, you're, you're taking just, a beating yeah. from the weather doing yeah. your, your daily job. Yeah, the the shellback. You're at the equator. It's hot and yeah. sunny and nice out up there. It's the other way around. Icebergs and stuff, and it's freezing. You're in your winter gear. So and that, and we were in the HMS uh, the HMS uh, Victory, which is in Portsmouth, England. That's where the HMS, that's where Admiral Nelson is, a big Navy town over there. Uh, I got my uh, tattoo of the, my American Eagle in Portsmouth. Nice. Okay, so I just, my mother, I, my mother hated it. But How uh, old were you when you got that? 20. 20? 20, 
twenty. We were in, we were in England, and I remember the we go into a bar, and the uh, the the, uh, the uh, Limeys mm-hmm. would sing. We got a special song for the Yanks, and it was something like a, uh, like a World War Two movie. They would sing us a song and welcome the Yanks, and then we we go out and we drink with them and have a good time and stuff. So, good good camaraderie there. Uh, we went Israel, and they gave you the shirt off your back. Okay, I remember walking in the uniform. The car would pull over and said, "You guys need a ride." At, to town, I'd say sure. They'd say, "All right, you." They kick the people out of the back seat and put the Americans in. <laughs> there you they'd go. Get out, you walk. And I was like, "No, no, no, that's cool. That's you know, we'll give you a ride. Don't worry about it." The opposite in Egypt, it was uh, it was nasty. It was a sandbox. Everybody was depressed. Yeah. You know, walking around with camels. You know, it was it was just depressed. Everybody, nobody had a smile on their face. That's what I remember about Egypt. Well, and that's one of the extra benefits of being in the military and traveling around the world you truly gain a appreciation for home perspective absolutely now clearly once again as i stated in past episodes i've never been in the military so i'm not trying to put across the assumption that i have but i have a friend of mine who a couple years ago after his father passed away he decided to take a break from his daily life and he went on a hike across the vietnam and areas in that part of the world and when he came back from that six-week sabbatical, his demeanor and his outlook towards the politics and what's going on in our country had flipped completely 360. Mm. And he basically said, if you think we got problems here, mm. I might suggest you uh, go elsewhere for a little bit and recalibrate your senses. And when you come home, you will appreciate the things that you took for granted in the past. And you will re- realize that a majority of your problems, when it comes to the bigger scale, isn't shit. Mm-hmm. You got people to this day in villages trying to find clean water, trying to find sanitary places to offload their offload, if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, let alone find food and support your family. That's right. Your kids, a pair of shoes. Yep. Okay. I mean, it's it's not the it's not the. Uh... It's not the you know the perfect system, the American system, but trust me, I, I know because I've been there. It is the best. It is the best system. And as I've said on maybe past episodes of this one or the uh, podcast I do with my friend Dave, you gotta look at the United States like the Yankees. Everybody's mad at the Yankees. Why are they mad at the Yankees? Because the Yankees win. The United States has been able to do in 280 years what countries over in Europe haven't been able to pull off in thousands. I mean, in the big scheme of things, the existence of this country on this planet, on the big timeline, when you look at Rome, how long Italy's been around, the uh, monarchy over in Europe, France, China, Japan, all those civilizations have been around a hell of a lot longer than we have. But we've been able to pull off something incredible in a little shy of 300 years. We're the new kids on the block. And we're successful. And that's why everybody hates the Yankees, and that's why everybody hates us. Well, I agree with you on that, but uh, I, I have a special hate for the Yankees because I'm from Queens, <laughs> and I'm a Mets fan. I'm from Rosedale, Queens, and the Mets were born and raised in Flushing, New York. So, I, well, I have no dog in the baseball <laughs> fight, but I just, I just know that everybody hates the Yankees. I and, and if you want to go the football route, the Patriots too. 
Yeah, I mean, you win winning. and you win True. and you win. They're always winning. And and a few years ago, I was explaining to somebody not to get off into politics, but when the uh, especially in this country, people seem to be uh, beating our we seem to be beating ourselves up. And the reference I was using one time in a conversation, it would be like we were winning the world's cookie cooking championship for 250 years. And everybody's getting pissed because our cookies kept winning. And we started to feel bad about it, so we decided to change the recipe. Yeah. If the recipe works. Right, yeah. If there's a little too much salt, fine, we'll back off on the salt. Not enough sugar, why we'll a little sugar. Our recipe ain't perfect, but it's the best on the menu. And people have to, again, this Memorial Day, people have to recognize the military, what they do. They, they don't know a lot about it. I'll give you an example. We were in uh, off the coast of Libya. We were doing our thing, and Muammar Gaddafi was there, and he's, he's put up two SS-22s, and the Americans shot him down. We shot two planes down, mm-hmm. okay? And I got a T-shirt that says, U.S. 2, Libya nothing. Hmm. Now, we pulled into port, and the press came on board and said, we want to see the, the planes that shot down, the Libyan planes. And the, all the brass said, oh, yeah, those are those two right over there. And they were the brand-new planes, right, which had nothing to do. What really shot him now was those two crappy ones. Were like you know, it was like a seventy-seven Granada. You know, it was nothing. Yeah. That's the one. Our worst plane. that needed a paint job. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it. They said, no, no, go show them those new ones. Well, not only that, but show them the new ones so that we can get a bigger budget to buy more of the new mm-hmm. ones. Because that's, when it when it comes to that, it's all about trying to get more uh, more uh, budget stamp to buy more heavy gear. I got. Uh, I remember you got fifty-five dollars extra a month for working on the flight deck. Hazard pay? Hazard pay. I got hazard pay for when I was on, yeah. 55 bucks a month? Yeah. Eh, small increase since <laughs> 1944, when your dad was getting 25 for jumping right. out of that airplane. Right, yeah, a perfectly good airplane. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Yep. Chris, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for uh, bringing to light what happened on this day in 1981. May 26, 1981. It's, if you Google it, you'll see it. It's right off the coast of Florida, and it's for all the Navy people. It's... Haze gray and underway, as they say in the Navy. And remember, don't forget what the Navy stands for. Never again volunteer yourself. N-A-V-Y. That's what they do. <laughs> and on that note, thank you all for joining us. I'm Don Abernathy. This is What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Yes, we are a World War II-based podcast, but I felt it was important for this weekend to have Chris in here and to share the memories of those he served with who uh, perished on the day of the accident and uh, and take some time off from work and our busy schedules to be appreciative of what we have and what was gained and earned by those who fight for our freedom. Armstrong, Elwood M., Captain, United States Marine Corps, Haverlock, North Carolina, Barnhart, Thomas E., Airman Apprentice, United States Navy, 18, Cleveland, Ohio. Colin, Alberto, Airman, United States Navy, 21, Brooklyn, New York. Cragen, Lawrence D., First Lieutenant, United States Marine Corps, Cherry Point, North Carolina. Driscoll, Dennis R., Fireman, United States Navy, 21, Irvington, New Jersey. Gothard, Jackie L. Airman Recruit, United States Navy, 22, Casper, Wyoming. 
Hinoja, Arturo, Airman, United States Navy, 25, San Antonio. Inetti, Peter R., Airman Recruit, United States Navy, 21, Oakdale, Massachusetts. Iser, Robert W., Petty Officer 3rd Class, United States Navy, 22, Richfield, Minnesota. Lewis, Patrick D., Airman, United States Navy, 21, Westland, Michigan. McLaurin, Lewis J., Petty Officer, 3rd Class, United States Navy, 22, Lowell, Mississippi. Swider, Frank J., Airman Apprentice, United States Navy, Providence, Rhode Island. White, Steve E., First Lieutenant, United States Marine Corps, Patrick's Air Force Base, Florida. Wildermuth, Ronald, Airman, United States Navy, 19, Westerville, Ohio.